All right, Matthew 18, and uh, we got down through verse 10 last time where we were talking about uh, the angels and uh, how uh, that issue of um, the reference there to the supernatural protection and uh, the intervention that God's going to uh, have on behalf of the little flock and uh, the little, that little group of believers, the believing remnant, they're in the nation, and it really during the time of offense, and that's what they were talking about there, about being offended and, every, and so forth. And uh, really that's a picture of the uh, tribulation um, period. And now as we come now into verse 11, uh, down through verse 14, we uh, begin to see an illustration here of how uh, it is that God... Uh, intends to protect his people, and uh, so forth. So verse 11, For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. How think ye, if a man have a hundred sheep, and one of them be gone astray, doth he not leave the ninety and nine, that, and goeth into the mountains, and seeketh that which is gone astray? And if so be that he find it, verily I say unto you, he rejoiceth more of that sheep than of the ninety and nine which went not astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Now, again, he's demonstrating the fact that, um, he, that he has come to carry out the Father's will there. Even, the will, even so, it is not the will of your Father. And uh, he, his Father's will is that the littlest one would not be lost. And, and that's really the issue. Uh, again, we all know the story of the 90 and 9 and the 1. And the parable over in Luke 15, we've looked at it in the past, is given there. And the idea is that that is, in the analogy of the parable, let me say it like that, is the issue here? Come back to Matthew nine. Of we're not, you're not going to be lost at all. If you're in that little flock, you've come out. Uh, Matthew nine. You've come out of the the that untoward generation. You've gotten into the little flock. That the shepherd is going to be there. He's going to call. You're going to come. He's going to find you, and you're going to get back into the fold. And that's the idea here. How is he going to protect? In the first ten verses, you've got. We ended that section talking about the angel protection, but now here's how it's going to work out. And guess who's involved? The shepherd, and he's the one that's going to go and traverse the uh, traverse the, the the mountaintops and the fields and the valleys to find just that one. Uh, Matthew nine. If you look at verse twelve, Matthew nine twelve. But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them. That they be they that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. So who needs the physician? The sick one does. Not the uh, if if you're not sick, you don't go to the doctor. You don't look. You're not seeking them out. I, I just with not going back to the bus yard and stuff. I I got onto the uh, uh, healthcare program, and they're like, we need you to pick a doctor. I said, I don't need a doctor. No, you got to pick one. We need you to pick one. There's a $10 reward in it. I'm like, okay. 
So I went and picked it and got my $10 reward. I don't know what the reward's going to get me yet. I haven't got it yet. I just know, you know, you got to do this. If you're not sick, you're not looking for a doctor. They're, they're going to look for a doctor. So, verse 13, But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In other words, the nation of Israel out there is not looking for the Savior. They think they're what? Righteous. You see, they look upon themselves out there as being good to go, having no issues. And that the 90 and 9... They consider themselves what? Safe in the fold. They're, they're, they're there. And yet, Jesus comes to save not the ninety and nine, but the one. And that's the issue. Uh, when you uh, come back over to, with me to, um, uh, well, go back to Luke, Luke 19. The, the, this issue here. You know, there's a, there's a thing in this that even translates over into us today is you're never going to get saved until you know you're what? Lost. <laughs> you know, we were out uh, scouting for hunting last weekend. And, you know, it's like, okay, where we were last year, we were here. So we need to go there and we're going to put up a camera and stuff. And then we're going to go over here. And you know, without a GPS unit, pretty quick, you got, I got turned around. I'm like, dude, this all looks like green trees, <laughs> brown trees, you know? Because, so then, you know, what, you, what I did was then I began to look for the rest of the party, <laughs> going, okay, you know? And I had my GPS unit with me, but still, the thing is, is if you real quickly, you can get lost, then what do you need? Some, somebody or something to come and get you out of the predicament. And that's the issue here that these guys are going to have to deal with here. And, and that thing in, in, Mark, in Matthew there, learn what that means. I'm not come to save the righteous. I'm come to save the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Luke 9, I'm sorry, Luke 19, verse 9. And Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation, is salvation come to this house. For as much as he also is a son of Abraham, why did how why why did salvation come to his house? Because he's the son of man. He's there, but he's also the what? He's the son of Abraham. What's he bringing? He's bringing the blessings, and he's bringing in the everything the Abrahamic covenant was all about. Verse ten: For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And, and what, really what happens is, is you have to read verse 9 and 10 together. They don't go, they're not separated. Most people separate them out. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. He came to seek and to save the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And we've seen that, Matthew 10, Matthew 5, Luke 19, Luke 13, and so on. So when you begin to think about, when he's talking about this 90 and 9, going after 1, he's demonstrating, uh, come back with me to Ezekiel 34. He's demonstrating this issue of 
hey, I didn't come to take care of the 99. I got, I'm out here looking for the one, and guess what? They're one of, not one's going to be missing. I'm going to get them all. Now, when you come to Ezekiel 34, uh, we begin to see that Christ uh, coming to save the remnant and everything is is back here in the prophets. And in Luke 34, 35, and 36, you see the regathering of the nation of Israel. They're gathered back together. They're united. Chapter 37, you see the nation restored. Um, and, and the two houses become one. That, that's that issue of the valley of dry bones and the two sticks. Then in chapter 38 and 39, you see the battle of Gog and Magog. We've talked about the second coming of the Lord. And then in the chapters 40 to 48, you see the, the, the millennial kingdom and the temple and all of that uh, set up, and then the reign and the worship of God there goes on and so forth. Ezekiel 34, verse number 11. For thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I, even I, will both search my sheep and seek them out. What's he going to do? Search and seek. And he's going to find. Okay? Now watch verse 12. As a shepherd seeketh out his flock in the day that he is among his sheep that are scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and will deliver them out of all places where they have been scattered in the cloudy and dark day. What's the prophet telling Israel is going to happen to them? They're going to be scattered abroad. It's coming. Verse 13, And I will bring them out from the people and gather them out of, from the countries, and will bring them into their own land, and feed them upon the mountains of Israel, by the rivers, and all the inhabitants, uh, inhabited places of the country. He's going to go regather the nation, he's going to gather them up, and he's going to go plant them back in their land. Verse 15, I will feed my flock, I will cause them to lie down, saith the Lord God. I will seek that which was lost, and bring again that which was driven away, and will bind up that which was broken, and will strengthen that which was sick, but I will destroy the fat and the strong, I will feed them with judgment. And as for you, O my flock, thus saith the Lord God, behold, I judge between cattle and cattle, between the rams and the he-goats. My flock... You know what he says? I'm going to come and I'm going to gather you up and I'm going to find you and we're going to put it all back together. Drop down to verse 26. And I will make them and the places round about my hill a blessing and I will cause the shower to come down in his season. There shall be showers of Blessings, and we have a song, showers of blessing, and so forth. But that that issue there is that there's going to be showers of blessings. And that refreshing that he's talking about is that times of refreshing that Peter mentions in Acts 3. That we're ta- So what we have in Matthew 18, when he talks about the salvation there and the Son of Man coming to save that which is lost, he's talking about Christ being the great shepherd. 
Now, come back with me to, or well, come over to Psalms 22. And when you think about the issue here of the great shepherd, there are three things or three categories that you have to remember about Christ being the shepherd. Psalms 22, Christ is called the good shepherd. Okay? In John 10 over there, he talks about the good shepherd laying down his life for the sheep. So in Psalms 22, you see him, that's John 10, verse 11 to 15. So then in Psalms 22, you see him as the good shepherd laying down his life for the sheep. Then in Psalms 23, verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. There you see him as the great shepherd who is gonna who is raised from the dead and that correlates out to Hebrews 13 over there in verse 20 and 21 where he talks about that issue of him being the great shepherd then in Psalms 24 you we see that he is the chief shepherd and he's going to be the chief over the flock. And that, that'll correlate over to 1 Peter 5 and verse number 4. So in Psalms 22, you have him as the good shepherd, the crucifixion, laying down his life for the sheep. Psalms 23, you have the, the, the congregation there under the watch care of the great shepherd. And then in Psalms 24, you have the second coming of Christ, and the chief shepherd leading out there among the people. So the so Christ, come back to Matthew 18 now, Christ is the shepherd in all three capacities. He's the prophet, the priest, and the king. And he handles all of those as underneath that shepherd title. Now, in Scripture... Sheep are always, anytime you read about sheep, you're reading about Israel. The only place close that you could see where Christ would ever talk about a Gentile being a sheep <laughs> is in Matthew 25 when they come before the throne and the Gentiles have literally merged, uh, merged themselves with Israel and he separates the goats from the sheep. Okay, that's the closest you can ever get to where Scripture calls a Gentile a sheep is in Matthew 25. Normally, and the 99.9999% of the time, sheep is going to equal out to uh, Israel. Goats usually equal out to the nations out there and so forth. Okay? All right, Matthew 18, verse 13. And if so be that he find it, he finds that one sheep, the one little one, the one that's out of the hundred out there. Verily I say unto you, he rejoiceth more of that sheep than of the ninety and nine which went not astray. Now that's a description of his joy, uh, of uh, the salvation for his little flock. Verse 14 is a very important verse. Even so... It is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Now, we talked about, by the way, if you see me reading my notes, <laughs> that's because my glasses, I, I went yesterday to the eye doctor, 
And so I got two weeks for new glasses. And for some reason, the, the poor doctor lady, she goes, how long you been? And I go, about a year. It's a little over a year. She goes, a year and a month. She goes, you went downhill quick. And, my, and, and I'm like, okay, well, that's why I can't read. So the printing on my notes is bigger than the printing in my Bible. <laughs> so this afternoon, I ran big, bold letters. I moved them over. I'm like, because usually I don't have the verses written out. But I do tonight because I couldn't, man, this morning I couldn't see worth nothing and I'm getting there again. All right, anyway, verse 14. Uh, we've, we talked about the little ones before and, and that issue about the little child there being a reference about the little flock. Possibly it could have even been one of Peter's children that he brought over and put in the middle of them and is using. So, But he, but he gets that little child. He sets that child there. He uses that child as an illustration of, of God's working in that little remnant. And then in verse 14, he says, It's not the Father's will to do what? Lose any of the little, little ones here. All right? So, when, and, and, and again, it's like 2 Peter 3 over there in verse 9-ish. Maybe I better look. 2 Peter 3, verse... Yep, verse 9, where it talks about the long-suffering, the, the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Father wants what? All, everybody to be saved. That's His will. But when you come in here in Matthew 18, in this reference here it, it, to the little ones, it's also a reference to little children. Yes, it is an illustration and a picture of the nation of Israel, of the little flock, but he's also talking about the little guys, the little children. You know, he says, suffer the little children to come. And what happens is, in verse four, Matthew 18, 14, is this verse gets used to talk about, real quickly, the age of accountability and then the salvation of children. And when he, when he says it's not the will of the Father in heaven that one of these little ones should perish, he's saying that this little child here, okay, does not, does God, the Father does not desire that that little child perish. So that little child's going to be what? Saved. And that issue here of, an, of the age of accountability in the Scripture it's a little aside here in Matthew, and sometimes this verse gets used about that. So I come over to Romans 5. I, it's something, though, that you know we need to be familiar with, Romans 5. Because, I mean, when you think about what goes on in our society today with the issues of abortion and everything, you know, you wonder about all those millions of souls that they've killed, because that's what they are, souls. You know, what's going on with them? Well, uh, Romans 5 here, that little baby is a human. Life starts at conception. That's scriptural. It's not, a, it's not an opinion. That's just what scripture says. And anybody that knows anything about the Bible says that life, was con life begins when conception happens. And those that don't understand that, then they get all the other talking points. And really, the only difference between a child 
and an adult is the issue of development. That's the only difference. They, they are born a sinner. That, they didn't have a choice in it. But they have a, but the, again, the only difference between a newborn baby and you and I sitting in this room today is the issue of, of development of time. And that issue of being able to develop the, the, the understanding and under, come to an understanding of between good and evil, what is right and wrong. Other than that, there's no, we're all born sinners. And, and see, what happens then is people say, well, there were elect babies. And that God, before the foundation of the world, knew that that, you know, the, so, so then what about, and then, so the elect babies go to heaven and the unelect babies go to hell. Huh? How, you know, that's a dastardly thing to say to a parents who just lost a child. You know, based on your life, that's like, like that thing over there in John when they, when they healed the blind man and they, the, the leadership comes up and they blame, they, they say mom and dad sinned, that's why he was blind. And the, you know, the young man says, I don't know whether that's the issue or not. I just know he, he's, the one that, he's the one that made me see. <laughs> you know, and it gets goofy. But the issue is, is that they're sinners. And they're and by birth, again, not by choice, <laughs> but that issue of personal accountability and knowledge isn't yet there in that child. And up until that point, the point when they begin to understand what's going on between right and wrong, there's a condition that, caught, that God then isn't going to impute their sin to them. And what you see is Romans 5.13. And you see this with Paul. For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. You see what he's saying there? Sin was there. But it wasn't known to be sin because the law wasn't there. By the, by the, the, the law is the knowledge of sin. See? So it wasn't imputed unto them. But yet, nevertheless, verse 14, death reigned. Why? Because the wages of sin is what? Death. That, that's what was reigning. And that's why they were dying. The natural consequences there. There's nothing else. You die because of sin. But there's an accountability before the justice of God where God doesn't account the sin. And that comes into that issue of where he doesn't mark it down, he doesn't hold it against you, because there isn't a knowledge of the sin. The law, that baby is still learning, still growing. But man, as soon as they begin to understand the difference between right and wrong, what's going to happen? Now there's accountability. Now the age of accountability doesn't really exist to, as far as Paul's concerned in the scriptures. But here in 5.13, he clearly he says, hey, there's an issue here that you have to be aware of. Uh, chapter 4 of Romans, verse 15. Chapter 4, back to 4, sorry. 4.15, because the law worketh wrath, for where no law is, there is no transgression. 
See, that's why he says there in chapter 3, verse 20, we've been through, Therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And again, go over to chapter 7. That's why Paul dealing with the law. Chapter 7, verse 9, For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, what happened? Sin revived, and I died. So there's a point here in the life of an individual when he doesn't know. Then, then he comes to the place where he does know. He reaches accountability. Prior to that age of accountability, coming to an understanding, that person isn't accountable. He's not going to be held for his individual sins. Christ died for his sins, the death of Christ, and so forth. It isn't there. But man, as soon as he begins to understand between right and wrong, now he's accountable. And, and you know what's wonderful about that? <laughs> because of Calvary, God's free to choose to save the ones who believe. That's the accountable sinner who believes. But God's also free through Calvary to save the one who has not come to accountability yet. And if he pleases to do so, and we get that. Go back to Deuteronomy. Just one verse back here. Well, maybe two. Deuteronomy chapter 1. You see, folks, so when you think about I, I, driving the school bus, a special ed bus, and the really, you know, the special needs kids and stuff, you know, and I would look at them and, do you know this, did, did you know that what you just did was wrong? They have no clue of right and wrong. So then what happens to them? I had a 21-year-old kid on my bus, because he ages out at 21, out of the program, and you know what? I drove that child for three or four years. He never understood what was right and wrong. We constantly had to had to do for him what was right and wrong. He's 21 years of age, but yet what? No accountability, no ability to figure it out. Deuteronomy 1. Uh, here's a little bit of an illustration for you. Um, some people say the age of accountability in the Old Testament was 19. 12. They'll say 12. You know why they say 12? Because that's how old the Lord was in the temple the first time over there in Luke. <laughs> okay? By 12, they ought to know. Well, you know what? You never know. And I'll t say something about that here in just a minute. L look at uh, verse uh, 39, Deuteronomy 1, 39. Moreover, your little ones, again, Matthew 18, the little ones, okay, which ye said should be a prey, and your children which in that day had no knowledge between good and evil. They shall go in thither, and unto them will I give it, and they shall possess it. See that? They have no good, no knowledge between good and evil. Moses is recounting to them how they came up to Kadesh Barnea, and they're ready to go in, and the twelve spies said no. And there, you know, the judgment there about wandering in the wilderness and all that, and the next, the new generation, and so forth. But notice the ch your children, which in that day had no knowledge between, if they had no knowledge between good and evil. By the way, knowledge between good and evil sounds a lot like Genesis three over there when Adam and them said, "Don't eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil." 
when he told them that, we called them innocent, the innocent ones. They didn't know. Now, whether that's the issue or not, that's what it is. Come over to Isaiah chapter 7. There's a point, just as Adam and Eve <laughs> that comes along, where they had no knowledge of good and evil, and then they gain the personal knowledge of the difference between good and evil. And guess what happens now? Now we have accountability. Okay? Isaiah 7, verse 16. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that thou abhorrest shall be forsaken of both her kings. Clearly there's a point before which the child doesn't know, isn't accountable, has not reached the place of making the personal choice between doing between refusing good and refusing evil. Now, what happens in that? And what is critical in this is, come back to Matthew 18, is the understanding of what is going on in the society. Because as those four institutions that God ordained in Genesis, the issue of volition, free will, make the choice, marriage, family, and then the nation. As a nation, the nationalism was designed by God to protect free will, marriage, and family. But as that nation loses that, and we've seen that in our country where the, family, the marriage gets attacked. It's now, you can literally almost marry anybody or anything you want nowadays, almost. And then the family gets attacked. Then what begins to happen? Society begins to, the evil in the society becomes quicker to identify. So I look at our young children that are running, the babies around here. They will understand good and evil quicker than you and I did when we were that size. Because it's right there in front of them all the time. And in our case here, they have parents that are going to point that out to them, <laughs> you know. So when, when maybe in your lifetime, you didn't quite catch on to what was going around you till you were 8, 9, or 10, they're catching it at kindergarten, or if not before that, see. So you have that issue of society is pressuring down the e it's promoting the evil and kicking out the good. So now what the, do the kids have? They can identify the evil and the good, and they go, well, we do that, we don't do that. Now what are they? They're accountable. And that's why when they sit in a Sunday school class over there with Linda and with uh, Andrea, the gospel is talked to them constantly because they need to understand what? Good and evil, they're getting there, so then they need to understand that there was someone who paid for their sin. See? So, again, go back to Matthew 18. That's just a little aside. took about 10 minutes there. But just so you're clear and you understand that people use verse 14 and that issue about the little ones should, that one of these little ones should perish, and they're saying, oh, look, you know, all the children are going to heaven. Not necessarily, okay? 
Because in our society today, you got little guys doing a lot of things that some grown men never did, you know. Why? Because the, the, the nation is, is promoting the evil and, and disregarding and getting rid of the good. So those kids are, they're growing. You'd, you'd hear people, they grow up so fast. Literally, they do. You know, when, when they're teaching, I, I read a thing a couple years ago about they're having a sex ed class in kindergarten. I'm like, what? You know, we didn't get that till we were seniors. <laughs> and that was, you know, or if, you know, I'm like, in kindergarten. Why? Because that's what it is. I picked up a little boy. He was in elementary. He's in second grade. And he, he, every other word was a bad word. And I said, come here, i got to talk to you. And he's like, why? I go, because we can't have your language on the bus. You don't talk like that way on Mr. Jordan's bus. And he goes, well, we talk like that at home. And I said, I don't care what you do at home. When you're on my bus, you don't use that language. So I went up and talked to the teacher. And she's like, yes, we have that same problem in the classroom. But what's he hearing? That's just what it is, you know. And so what happens is, now, the babies that are being aborted in the issue of abortion, they don't have a chance. So where are they? They go right into heaven's glory, okay? And they'll, have a, they'll be in that every other name that's named category. So anyway, get off of that. I'll have a lot of emails on that one probably. But it's something because people get all touchy about age of accountability. To me, Romans 5.13 ties the rag on the bush. When they don't understand what's going on, there's nobody, no law, no rule saying that's right and that's wrong, then he's not imputing that to them. Anyway, verse 15. we got to get going. I'd like to finish the chapter tonight. Matthew 8.15. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say unto you, that if two of you shall agree on earth it is, uh, as touching anything, that there shall, anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Now, again, he's, gonna, he's talking here about offenses. If a brother offend thee, trespass. And what he's doing here is he's demonstrating how that little flock should handle the problems and the offenses that are going to come up in their midst, in, amongst themselves. Verse 15, 16, 17, very clear. If a, if a problem, if, if a brother trespasses against you, if, if over there in Matthew 5, he says, if someone oughts, 
uh, if, if you have an ought against a brother, if you've done something against somebody, or if it's been done to you, either way, what do you do? Go find the brother, work it out, get it squared away, okay? That's what you do. Here, the brother's done something uh, against you. You go and you get it and you straighten it out. Now, what happens is, is people begin to use this passage again, abuse this passage, and they begin to say, hey, you know, we're two or three are gathered, and we're going to do all this stuff. But what he's talking about, is, look there at verse um, 17. What he's talking about here is, is discipline within the church. That's what he's talking about. First, you go to the guy. And if he won't pay any attention to you, you've confronted him with it, or you've explained it to him if you're the one that did the wrong, and you talk to him and you try to fix it, then you know what you gained? You gained a friend. But if he won't pay any attention to you, go back to the group and get some help. Go get two, one or two witnesses, come over, get some other brothers, you come, you're going to talk, you're going to work down through it, and if he still won't respond, okay, then you go to the church and you kick him out. You remove him. You excommunicate him, as they say. All right? Now, this doesn't work for you, for us today in the church, the body of Christ. It's going to work for them there. How do you know that? Verse 18. Verily, verily. I say unto you, whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, this is a reference to the issue of the, of the offense. It's not talking about taking a collection and doing all this other goofy stuff. In the context, he's talking about discipline within the assembly, in the, that local church there, verse 17, where that church is going to have to make some decisions about the problems that are coming up in, in their midst. And, and the Lord says, listen, you guys have to have a quorum. That's verse 20. Two or three are gathered. You're going to have to have a quorum there. And whatever you bind will be bound, and whatever you loose will be loosed. In other words, what Christ is saying to him is, I'm going to give you authority to act in my absence. Where I don't have to do this, you can take care of it, and you can do it. Now, he's going to, verse 19, Again I say unto you, that if two of you shall agree on earth, as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of of them. He's going to be going away. He knows that. He's preparing them. He's getting them ready for, for the work of the ministry and everything. And he's getting the group together. And that issue of two or three, I know I've always said, Dad's always said, J.C. O'Hare said, when two or three are gathered, take up an offering. That's not what he's talking about, okay? That's a great idea. By the way, the offering box is in the back of the room. And people on the internet, you can give through the PayPal or the Zelle, okay? Plug there. But see, the thing is, is that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a quorum. You can't do anything in decision-making, in leadership, unless you have a quorum. 
We've already seen this in Matthew 16, verse 19 with Peter. Peter, whatever you bind or loose will be done in heaven. Over there in, 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 in uh, Galatians 2, I'll remind you, because time's going, we won't look at these. You go over there to Galatians 2, the first nine verses, Paul is meeting with Peter, James, and the, and the group there, and they come up and they give him the right hands of fellowship. And what they do is they, call, they, they use that authority to loose themselves from their commission, post-resurrection commission, and to bind the Gentiles over to Paul, the heathen. So there's a movement there, and that's literally what he's talking about. He's talking about that they're gonna, they have the ability to use their uh, apostolic authority, if you will, to officially recognize what's going on and to take care of the problems. And by the way, in Galatians 2, uh, there was another verse. Hang on a second. The, uh, John 21, same thing over there where it talks about Peter. But with Paul, they use their apostolic authority to officially recognize the new apostle, the new dispensation. And when they did that, they, they loosed themselves from, all, from their post-resurrection commission. That's what's happening here. Matthew 18 is where we need to be. Sorry, let's go a little quicker now, okay? And, and again, it, it's, the issue here is that there's going to be problems coming up. You guys, we're over in the tribulation. We're over there. When trouble comes up, this is how you handle it within the little flock. Verse 21. Now, here's a real appropriate passage to follow the one that gives them instructions about how to handle the problems. Verse 21. Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall I, shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him till seven times? Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Isn't that interesting? Peter says, hey, how, how, seven times is good? And the Lord says, no, seventy times seven. Now, how much is 70 times 70, times 7, sorry, 490 years, okay? That's a number that ought to ring a bell. First of all, 7 ought to be ringing a bell, 70 ought to ring a bell, but 490 ought to be ringing a bell because they're all numbers associated with Israel and with Israel and, and some significant events in their history. The number 490 is a number that shows up in Israel's calendar over and over and over again. And it's important on the prophetic clock for them. From the time that God made the covenant with Abraham to the time that Joshua enters into the land is 490 years. From Joshua to Saul, King Saul, is 490 years. From Saul to Nebuchadnezzar, Babylonian captivity, guess what? 490 years. From the commandment to go back and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, in the 70th week of Daniel, is 490 years. Those 490 years 
uh, very in, in, interesting, very instructive with regard to how Israel's prophetic clock ticks. And there are things, you'll go through some of that and you'll see, uh, like in that issue there from Abraham to Joshua, and the judges and so forth, you got all from Joshua to Saul, that really is much longer, on, it's like 600 years on the clock, on the calendar, but only 490 of it is counted towards Israel's prophetic clock. So you've got to, you know, when you get into them looking at them, you go, oh, you've got to pay attention, all right? So when he says 70 times 7, Peter knows what's coming to, what's coming. That 70th week of Daniel, so I'm only going to have to forgive this guy 70. What, what, hap, what happens on the 491? <laughs> you know, that's, all, that's usually what we would ask, right? He didn't ask that, see. Peter knows, Peter understood that he wasn't talking about forgiving them infinitely. He's talking about the forgiveness in relationship to a period of time. And on that, on Israel's prophetic clock, it only lasts 490 years. And that 70th week of Daniel that's coming, that seven-year period is what is being dealt with in this parable that he gives them here, in this picture. Verse 23, Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon one, to reckon one was brought unto him, which owed 10,000, owed him 10,000 talents. But for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and his children and all that he had in payment be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants which owed him a hundred pence. Now, <laughs> And what did he do? He laid his hands on him, took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. Okay? Now, look about this. The, the man owed 10,000 talents. Ten th he owed 10,000. Whoa, sorry. He owed, yeah, it was this. I got caught up in that. All right, all right. Okay. He, he, he owed $10,000. Okay? He couldn't pay it, but the master forgave him completely. He went out looking for a guy that owed him, what, four pence? A hundred pence. Owed him a hundred dollars. Grabbed that guy by the throat and threatened him. And his fellow, verse 29, and his fellow servant fell down at his feet. I mean, think about that. He choked your life out of you almost. And besought him, saying, have, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And he would not, 
but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. I never understood that. Why throw a guy in jail when you're trying to get your money back? You know? I mean, unless the jail's running a business out the side or something. I, I'm sorry. I never understood that. But anyway. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that he had called him and said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt because thou desiredst me. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wrath, was wroth, sorry, and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. Now, you understand what's going on there. It's pretty clear. The principle here is real clear. They're going to come That issue of, of uh, to whom much is given, much is required, that's the idea. That's the principle here. And you know what it's picturing here is the nation of Israel. They were in tremendous debt to God. They couldn't even, they could never pay the debt off. Then they, with wicked hands, take their Messiah and do what? Crucify him. They hang him on a tree. They nail him. They get in in league with the Gentiles and they go and kill him. And what did Christ say? Father, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Well, what was their response to that early acts? A thank you? Nope. What'd they go do? They went after the little flock, persecuted them. They go and they they don't ask for forgiveness. They just go after them. They're angry. So what's the Lord going to do? Turn them over to the tormentors. Well, there's your 70th week of Daniel. See? They're gonna they they're angry at the little flock for going out there and receiving mercy from God and doing their job, and they persecute them. Tremendous persecution. So what do they do? So what does the Lord do? Verse 34, turn them over to the tormentors. Verse 35, so likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. That, the, that nation, rather than being angry, rather than being ungrateful, should have been right there saying, please and thank you. But they weren't. And what the Lord's doing here with that little flock is, is he's telling them they're not going to play nice with you. They hated me. They're going to hate you too. And when that stuff comes your way, know that there's a deliverance over there for you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm not going to let one of you little guy, little ones lost. My 90 and 9, I get them. And I get my 100 as well. Now, what happens 
in verse 35 is they have to forgive if ye from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. And that issue of forgiveness, Matthew 6, the, the official prayer of the Roman Catholic Church, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Okay, you know that word. Verse 14 says, For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That's a tough. That's tough. And that's what 1835 is talking about. You're going to have to get over there, and you're going to have to forgive them, because what do you need? You need to maintain the program, the package deal, so you can get in as well. Now, their forgiveness is not like our forgiveness today. Ephesians 4.32, And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, what, hath forgiven you. We forget. You see, the issue of forgiveness is laying there. Why was Israel forgiving? Why was that little flock going to do verse eight, uh, 35 and forgive their the brother's trespass? Why were they going to do that? So that they could have what? They could get something over here. Okay? We are to forgive. See, forgiveness is the, is the issue, but how to do it and what it's accomplishing are different. We forgive those who trespass against us, but for a different reason than Israel. You see, we do it because God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven us. Colossians over there, he says, uh, forgive, uh, forbear and forgive one another. So do ye, the end of that verse says. There's a difference between the two programs, yet the good work is the same. And that's really all through here. I hope you kind of see kind of on the sideline that at, we see this issue about a good work but the reasons behind doing it are completely different because the law program works on the basis of fear. I tell you what, Matthew 6, 14, and 15 ought to scare you to death if you had to do that because you would never know if you, did I forgive Paul enough? No, no he says. So now what? I don't get the good, I don't get, see, I don't know if I ever did. But in grace, I can forgive Paul because I have been forgiven. I know what it is to be forgiven, so therefore I can then forgive others. Okay? We made it through, through the end of the chapter. So I hope as we, going through Matthew here, that you see some of the fascination in the book, uh, not just to try to pull it out and put it on us, because I've never done that. We've never done that. Leave it where it sits. But just see how it works where it fits. And what happens is, is we understand that it works per wonderfully and perfectly for, for the nation of Israel. And yet, it's wonderful to see how gracious God is with them, because he could have cut these guys off at the kneecaps a long time ago. But he didn't because he's got a plan, he's got a program. And uh, we can see what, how consistent he is with who he is. So then guess what? We know he's that way with us as well. Okay? All right? So as you go through this, he's talking to the little flock. 
He's teaching them. He's getting them ready for his absence. Here in 19, he's going to go down to, he's going to start moving towards Jerusalem. He's going to go down. He's going to do some things. He's going to do some different stuff. He's going to die. He's going to go away. But then they're going to go into that early Acts ministry and into the tribulation. So he's getting them ready for his absence to operate with authority on and his two or three. You got the authority. Go do it. And then he says, and by the way, you guys need to main, maintain the program. Because if you don't, then you're out. Okay? All right. Dear Father, we thank you for the evening, Lord. We thank you for your word. And above all, Lord, we thank you for who we are in Christ. We thank you that you interrupted this program with the dispensation of grace so that we could be included in it, in your plans and in your purposes. In your name we pray. Amen.